Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, another special one-on-one conversation. This week between Clay Jenkinson and his guest, Beth Huffman, author of Bet the Farm. The dollars and cents of growing food in America. I'm fascinated by the agrarian, as every good Jeffersonian should be. She and her husband left the Bay Area in California to go back to a family farm in Iowa and to try to transform it from being a typical petrochemical-based agri-production facility into something more humane, more sustainable, more friendly to the, the problems that the Earth is having, absorbing all of the carbon of human industrial civilization. Not easy to transform a farm that has been prosperous in a family for several generations, but I so admire the courage that Beth Huffman and her husband have shown in trying to do this gracefully. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. Good day to you, Mr. President. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I wanted to talk to you about education, what we would call in my time higher education, and its, uh, its cost. It's extremely expensive today in America for students to go to college. Now, I'm sure that there were charges involved when you went to college. Could you talk about that, sir? Well, not everyone was able to go to college. Uh, college was reserved for a much smaller uh, percentage of the population in my day. The sense was that most people would get a, you know, two or three or four years of education, perhaps from a local school of some sort or a privately tutored. Uh, I should say there were no public schools in Virginia, uh, even at the time of my death. None, sir? In 1826. But there were private academies and finishing schools, and pastors and ministers would have uh, uh, schools of a sort, boarding schools. But most people settled for a very small amount of formal knowledge and then graduated out into the, the larger economy. University education or college education was the um, the province of the elite. Uh, no girls, no slaves, um, very few poor whites. It really was white males of a relatively large amount of private property from families of means. I was fortunate. My father, Peter Jefferson... Uh, was not a wealthy man, but he was well enough off, and he wanted me to be classically educated, and though he didn't live to see me go to college, he died when I was 14. Two and a half years later, I went up to the College of William and Mary, which was the oldest institution of higher education in Virginia, and I've been the only one at the time, and I spent a couple of years there, but only between 100 and 200 students were studying at at William and Mary at that time, uh, a tiny fraction even of the elite social order of Virginia. Mr. President, I think you would be astounded at the amount of education available to Americans in my time, um, both free and uh, through institutions. Uh, There are countries in the world, Germany comes to mind, where all higher education is paid for by the government. I'm not sure if you would be in favor of something like that in America or not, sir. Not in my own time. 
Uh, I want government to, to do the things that only government can do. Well, it could be argued that only government can provide education free of charge to the population. Not so? Possibly. I, you know, it's, it, it's inherently a good idea because everyone that you educate becomes a better citizen, is more self-reliant, is more productive, is less likely to be a ward of the state or, or, or to be a dependent in any way, less likely to commit crimes, less likely to engage in antisocial behavior. So education for me is the great elixir. It's like the alchemist's stone. It's what makes a great republic possible. But I I went to my grave still believing that it should be primarily for the intellectual elite, not for everyone, and secondarily that public funding should exist for schools up until, I suppose, what you would call eighth grade, but that university education uh, is a private matter. And you would you would stick with that in uh, modern America as well? I don't know what I would think in your time. I, I I will say this much, as I put it to my mentor, uh, enlighten the people generally and every form of tyranny, both of body and mind, will disappear like the fog when the sun rises in the morning. And as I put it to George Wythe, my great mentor, if you expect to be a nation ignorant and free, you expect something that never has been and never can be in the history of the world. Well, you make my arguments, or I would be in favor of uh, using the taxes that I pay uh, to be used for general education of all citizens who are interested in it. Well, the earth belongs to the living, not the dead. I would only say this. If you intend to do that, you need to make sure that people are responsibly using that public education. And I think a constitutional amendment would be in order to enable that, because up till then, I'm a strict constructionist. And I believe that we can only do those things which the Constitution literally outlines. Good advice, sir, and I shall consider it. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome. citizens and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, another special one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and Beth Hoffman. Clay, can you tell us a little bit about Beth Hoffman before we go to the conversation? I was so pleased to have the opportunity to interview her. I came across her book, At the Farm, The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. It dovetails nicely with one of my own interests, which is the future of food production, the future of agriculture, the, the, the continuation of the agrarian dream for America that was best articulated by Thomas Jefferson. And so I'm working uh, with governing.com on a series called Listening to America. I asked her to sit down for an interview. She did. She was fascinating. She and her husband left the Bay Area uh, in California to move to, the, to his family's farm in Iowa and to try to transform it from a typical petrochemical big equipment agro-production facility that had been quite successful, by the way, into something closer to a sustainable farm and just what that means 
and what they met by way of resistance and how they have gone about this great challenge is the stuff of the interview. It's a great conversation. Very interesting. Let's go to it now. They're a fascinating couple. She's a fascinating person. Her book is really interesting. I recommend it to people who might want to know about the future of food production in this country. And she's funny. So let's listen to some segments of my conversation with Beth Huffman, the author of Bet the Farm, The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. So I'm so glad to be doing this. I read your book with great joy. And it's sort of two things, isn't it? It's sort of the story, which is a wonderful story, uh, but I'll, it's ongoing. There you still are. Yeah. And I'm eager, for, I'm eager for you to catch us up on how things are going. But then there's the uh, almost a manifesto about what regenerative agriculture could look like. Mm-hmm. And so those are two quite different things. But first of all, catch us up. How many years have you been in this experiment? Yeah, it's just uh, three years. So we're not much further. We're about, I guess, that process finished maybe a year before, you know. So at this point, we are finishing up, I think we'll be in our last year of making the cattle payments. So we're getting to the point where we are supposedly free of that sort of um, high expense. Although we ended up purchasing a little bit more land, the land around our house. So we have that expense now. I, I guess we're getting to a point where we have the processing sort of figured out better. Uh, so we have um, a locker that we're working with and are, you know, kind of excited about working with. And so that's a little bit better figured out. In the works is a company that's talking about really aggregating grass-finished beef from around the state and to sell like in Chicago and Omaha and, you know, places like that. So that's, uh, that could be very good if that all works out as he's hoping. And we also, I think, have found that the direct marketing has worked out quite well and that especially with the book we're feeling like we we might be able to handle a lot more cattle done directly so we're hoping for that this year what has the book done for this i think i hope the book has uh created a group of people like we have more people who are signed up for our blog even though that's not a real you know it's not thousands of people there's hundreds of people on the list but I, I think that the book has brought attention to the topics, but you know, also a bit to our farm. And then there's just been a lot of people who then have said like, oh, well, where can I find grass-finished beef? I've always wanted to. And so I think that, I think it's called more attention to the farm. So I'm hoping that we can sort of, when we start having cattle, we can kind of be having a list that's much wider than we've had in our first couple of years. So, and, and, and how's your father-in-law? He is turning 90 this year. He's good. He's actually taken much more of a backseat than I ever thought he would. I think initially he was very, he was, he was amazed at how much work we were doing. Like he would say to John, this kind of Midwestern phrase, I get all wrong, but it's something like, that's a lot of sugar for a dollar or something like he would say, like, uh, you know, you're out there working, moving the cattle every day. 
is this really going to pan out in the end in a, you know, an actual money being made? I think that what he's seen now is that particularly in this last year when we had a bit of a drought, like not California level drought, but we had a bit of a drought and people, uh, all our neighbors that had cattle that were grazing just, you know, like uh, conventionally, they were out of grass. And we've heard people like been feeding animals for months the hay already, and we have grass everywhere. So we have, we have lots of it. And so it's in part because we're, we're moving them. And so the grass is regenerating, but it's also because we have much less, we're not trying to pack on cattle. Yeah, I have a friend in North Dakota uh, who has a sustainability ranch. And they were had a much more severe drought, I think, than yes. you did. And they had uh, their crops, their hay and other crops, which they used just to feed the cattle in the winter, came in at about 80% of their usual yield, whereas their yeah. neighbors were at 25%. Right. So my question is, when, when neighbors see what works, even though it's a little bit more labor intensive, you would think that they would say, tell us how you did that. And they yeah. would be more willing to break with the paradigm of the way they were doing things. Yeah, I think that there's probably much more willingness now because people are, instead of just looking across the fence and thinking, oh, that's crazy, you know, they're thinking, let me know how that works out, you know, I'm, I'm curious. Um, you know, this year prices are up, so people are less motivated to make change, I guess, although fertilizer prices are also way up. So there's there's that element to it. Um, and I also think, I don't know about where your friend is, but for us, there's not a lot of social interaction. You know, there's the there's a pandemic for stuff, but also there's not places to gather. If you're not going to church or to the same church, you know, where would you where would you see all your neighbors to have those conversations? So I think that's part of what's happened too. You know, those those um, seed dinners that are put on and it's, I've always thought like that's something that has to happen on a more organic side as well. Like whether it's organics or just kind of regenerative or whatever it happens to be, that gathering together to have a meal, to socialize, to hear the latest research and everything like as a yearly thing would be really powerful because that is one of the few places that you meet together, you know, and you hear, you hear what you hear through seed dealers, equipment dealers. So there, there's just, it's a very hard thing. I don't think our neighbors, I think they know we're doing things differently, particularly because we have goats, but I don't think they know the details at all about what's happening. Well, the pandemic has coincided with your experiment with your new life. Yep. So that. That distorts the picture, I'm sure. But you know, you live in the heart of the world that produced the Grange and the and the Populist Party, and right. that was very important at the turn of the 20th century. That these farmers would get together and they would, they would, they would read books together and they would talk about best practices and they would right. wine together and they would, they would um, determine how they wanted to respond to policy together. And that's largely disappeared from American agriculture. Yes, I mean we. The farmers unions in a lot of these states is, is quite vibrant. Iowa, I'm on the board of the farmers union and it's 
a very, at its core, I think there's a really tight knit, like very dedicated group of people um, that I think, I think right now, particularly in the state, from what I hear, this is just kind of, you know, hearsay. It's like our board is really high functioning and really people are very involved and excited. Um, and there's a lot of support between, I mean, that's where I've gotten like people buying grass-fed beef and people excited about the book. A lot of that is board members. So, and I think in some states, the farmers union is, is very strong, you know, but, but yes, there's, it's a difficult, oh, and also very importantly in Iowa, we have the practical farmers of Iowa, which is exactly that. Like you do get together you do share information, you know, not only at the conference, but field days and other sorts of activities. There's a pretty, throughout the year, there's a steady way of being involved in learning more from each other, which I think is invaluable. Thinking a little bit about terminology. So regenerative agriculture, um, to the average Iowa farmer, um, they might think, well, what is there to regenerate? I mean, my, my production is good. Um, the, 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 the insurance is now great. The machinery. I mean, uh, my land is pr producing these you know, giant um, yields of corn. What do I? What do I need to regenerate? And so I, I think there's a kind of a almost a conceptual issue there, right? There's definitely, and I think that it's part of why. I mean, you'd see in my book, I never use that phrase like the food system is broken. People love to use that that phrase, just like it's like a catch-all, throw out there, sustainability kind of thing. And it's a really difficult argument, I think, to make to people who go to the supermarket and you can get almost anything you want, almost anywhere you want. And it, you know, it's I can get an avocado in deep rural America in February. Right in February. Like, how is that a broken system? I think is it's it's a hard. So I think I am a big advocate of like, let's talk about what we're talking about instead of using terms like big ag. Drives me crazy when people just say, oh, big ag. And then who falls into that? What what is that? Who I mean, yes, we understand like it's the Monsantos, it's the Dow Chemicals, it's the but at a if if you know, 98% of our farms are family farms. Another term that we just throw out there all the time. 98% of them are family farms. What is big ag? What is that exactly? What are we talking about? And so I think we have to be very clear and regenerative, same thing. If you use these terms, they can be used by anybody. Maybe arguably doing more concrete, like getting people to use cover crops than us kind of preaching to the choir about it, you know, on the side. It's, it's, it is difficult. You're listening to a special one-on-one -on -one conversation between Beth Hoffman and Clay Jenkinson. We'll be back in just a moment.
We now return to this week's special one-on-one conversation with Clay Jenkinson and Beth Huffman, the author of Beth the Farm. I picked up your book and read the first chapter that you go from the West Coast to, to a place in Iowa and that you have background in the humanities and you're a writer. I thought, I immediately went to to Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres, and I, and I had this kind of, uh-oh, this isn't going to come out well. You must have had some of that same feeling. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if it's particularly these days or just the writer's conundrum is like, you want to talk about the problems and you want to talk about the solutions. And the solutions are not as apparent and quick to say, well, here's the solution. Just have cooperatives. It's going to be great. So I want, I framed it. Yes. In the sense I was kind of like, "Uh Oh, what do I do about solutions? Cause I don't want to have a very Pollyanna ish, you know, at the end, like just everybody just do this. So yes, I think that's where talking about narratives and reframing and trying to get out of these paradigms that farmers and the public are kind of put the blinders on about what's possible. I think it's fascinating that you could actually make it whatever you can concoct something that's part cooperative. If you, if you want to, or there's just so many, so many other things to be thinking about, but yes, it's a difficult, I didn't want to do the thousand acres ending where it's just like, okay, so let's all leave agriculture. So Well, you know, you had two great advantages, as far as I can tell, Um, that you're a couple in in your early midlife, and you leave a very stable um, world, a world of prestige, really, and you move to the Midwest to take up a farm, but you had a farm to go to, Mm -hmm. you didn't have to go buy that farm, although you had to invest in that farm, and you had equity, which you, in the book, you draw down. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the two of you to be two professors at Berkeley who then decide to go to North Dakota or Kansas or Iowa and buy a farm? Exactly. I mean, I tried to make that very clear. It's like that element of privilege throughout that. It it wasn't like we were lucky that we just so happened to have equity. We just so happened to have land like this. That's a bit of what is baked into the American farm story. The land ownership story is, is that people like us, white, John's dad's case, male, you know, were afforded those kinds of bank loans and USDA programs and those kinds of things that helped families succeed and be five generations on the land. Those are things that much of the American public has not been afforded those same kinds of privileges. And I wanted to make that very clear. People wanting to farm and get onto land and not having access. I just read today in in Fern that um, the average farmland price in Iowa is now $9,700 an acre. It's the highest it's ever been in the state. And um, there's farmland going for, you know, $12,000, $18,000 an acre in this, in this state. And it's, it's not a reasonable price to pay to start actually farming. What that is, is investors coming in and, and dropping loads of money and something that they see as a much more stable asset than stocks or, you know, so it's a great place to store your money is in land. So try to imagine you and John 
not having any particular equity and not having land to go to, and you still want to live this dream, how, how can you do it in the United States now? I know you've been wrestling with this in your book. Yeah. One of the main problems is, is that people want to get into agriculture, but they want to get into agriculture in very specific places in the country. They want to be in the Hudson Valley. They want to be in Sonoma. Uh, those are places that are not practical places to start a farm with no money and no, you know. There are, however, lots of places like rural Iowa that there is land that that would be practical for starting out. Um, there's many groups like the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, SILT, um, has land that has been donated to them. They've set up a system where people who are coming onto the land can then, um, so you, you, you would buy the buildings basically, and you would have equity being built in owning the home and owning barns, but you wouldn't have to own the land. You'd have a very long-term lease. I think it's 99 years even of the land so that you have the security of being there a long time. You can invest in it. You can do things like regenerative agriculture that take years to establish, maybe even plant trees, things that you would never, ever even consider if you had a year-long lease. You would just would never do it. So that's a system that there is land available. There's definitely land available. I think just figuring out where that is and it's a giant leap to ask somebody probably in their 20s or 30s who have never lived in rural America to come live in rural Iowa or Kansas. Um, but lots of opportunities do exist. And I would say for Iowa, particularly because of the practical farmers of Iowa, there is a community that you are joining, even if it's not adjacent to the property, you don't feel like there's a lot of support right there. There's people all over, you know, just, just right now, for example, even though I don't know her personally, I've reached out to um, Denise O'Brien, who is a very well-established, you know, pioneer of organic farming in the state and just said, I just have this feeling like I should meet with you. Can I come visit? And so she said, of course, you know, because of course, then we know of each other through this network of people. So there is community. I think that's the biggest, scariest part of being a new farmer coming out to somewhere really rural, but there is property and there is community. So it is possible, actually. I'm sure it's possible. It sounds so daunting if an acre is $12,000. I get, you know, I might have enough money to buy two acres and then I have to borrow a tractor or there's no tractor I can afford to buy except an old farm wall from 1957. Yeah. So the, it just seems so daunting, I think, to people who look into it. And I don't think in most states there is a comparable organization to say SILT, which is trying to enable this to happen in a kind of a 99 year lease situation. But that sounds like a marvelous program. Yeah, I think the Agrarian Trust um, it's another place, you know, <clears throat> um, American Farmland Trust, all of those groups that are uh, trying to help that out. I know even just like in California, there's a, I want to say it's FarmLink, but there's ways that people, there's a lot of people in their 60s, 70s, 80s looking for people to come take over what they're doing. 
there just is, I think in all states, again, it's probably not in Sonoma, it's probably not in the Hudson Valley, but there's places more remote. So I think that it's just having, knowing those resources are out there, like the Agrarian Trust, to contact them, to see what's available. They will have resources so you can figure out what's maybe in the state or nearby. But taking the land purchasing out of the equation in perpetuity could be a game changer for lots of people who are willing to do it. And I think that the, the part that where you have equity in the buildings is an, an interesting consideration because the problem I see with those programs is that you're not building equity. You, you know, maybe in your brand, maybe in your farm, which is something I think more farmers should be thinking about is, is the equity in that, the value in what you're doing can be more than thinking about ecological services and government payments or something that ecological services could be part of our brand that then has value that we could potentially sell the brand at some point as well. But um, I think those groups can make a big difference. Yeah, on the one hand, you have the privileged Americans mostly who want to know where their food came from and shop at Whole Foods and, you know, are interested in CSAs and so on. Um, and that's a very wealthy and, um, a, and a growing population, more urban than rural, but still. And then on the other hand, you have these farmers who want to do this sort of thing. Connecting the dots is one of the problems, but you've been thinking a lot about that. So go back to um, the processing. In the book, you're frustrated because you can't get a critter processed for 18 months or whatever, and it took a long time to get in those queues, and you considered forming a co-op to, to, to create such a, um, a slaughterhouse. Um, where is it now? You said you've had some success in this. We have a few things in the work and works in Iowa, legally speaking, like there's a new butchery innovation, and there's also an interstate reciprocity system so that lockers can actually sign up for this program and then not have to have like USDA inspection in the same way that's so costly. So those are good um, things that hopefully will help alleviate some of the problem. And I also think so just to go back to the first part of your what you were saying about wealthy privileged Americans wanting to eat better and, and farmers raising higher quality um, things and, and bridging that gap. There's, there are you know, groups that are doing that. There's in Iowa, we have the Iowa uh, Food Co-op, for example, that farmers can sign up and then sell to consumers directly through the co-op, which has um, been a great resource. But I think one of the things that was very interesting from the research I did was that there's, there's signs that actually in less affluent neighborhoods where the um, there's not as much access to fresh food. A lot of people in those communities actually very much appreciated in the studies that these researchers did, they appreciated having access to CSA boxes, for example, community supported agriculture, where they would pay up front so they would know exactly what they have were paying for over the course of the summer. And then a box of food would arrive fresh every week or every other week. And 
the predictability of it, the convenience where we, we think, you know, if you're talking about affluent people, you, the options you have are enormous. You could have Blue Apron, you could have Whole Foods, you could have lots of different things. But where you, when you live in a community where those things are not present, the price point can't be enormous. You can't have perhaps, you know, food that, um, food that is raised at the top, tippy top of, you know, where you're spending that much time on labor and the, the amount of time on the processing and the marketing and all of those kinds of things. But I think that there is potential in that, that region where you're not, it hasn't been thought of as much for farmers. You think, oh, those, those neighborhoods don't have money to pay for it. When I think it's maybe, um, it's not as well thought of, but maybe that's something people do want to spend more money on to have the convenience of it, to have uh, fresh food for their families. I think that that's, we get confused about like, oh, as soon as, as soon as, families are rushed or have too many have to work too hard or don't have as much money that all they're going to eat is junk food and I think a lot there's a lot of families out there who don't want to eat junk food who are wonderful cooks who uh, would love access to fresh food right so there's middle ground uh, I think as you're saying and that that, that that this is a somewhat unexplored way to market that it doesn't have to just be whole foods. That's a very self-consciously privileged urban environment, but there are many places where people of less means, but who want to have better food, more know where their food came from, could, could do this. But that infrastructure is kind of being built one county at a time. It's not a national infrastructure. Correct. And I mean, to be clear, I think that Whole Foods is actually with the Amazon takeover is going for that demographic. Right. They're not competing with necessarily the highest of the high price point, small artisanal. They're going for a much wider swath of the American public by taking down prices, by having conventional produce, by, you know, so they built on the reputation. They took the brand and they've kind of watered it way down, but it's still like, oh, I shot, you know, I shop at Whole Foods. But yes, you're, you're right. It's not small producers leading into small processors directly to consumers. That system is um, not, not functioning very well in this country. You know, if, let's say that um, Amazon can distribute to a small town in South Dakota, a really fairly high quality food, but it's coming from way outside it's not helping the local economy. I'm very concerned about the, the hollowing out of rural America. Uh, yes. I know you are too. And so if this isn't done in a way that regenerates towns and the energy of towns, the creativity of towns, the, the capacity of towns to tolerate unusual and eccentric young people, mm -hmm. this can't succeed. In, in my own state, North Dakota, the, the out-migration is no longer out of state. It's from small towns to Fargo and to... Grand Forks and the cities, and this there's no end to it. I, mean, I think I was a little bit more stable, but I don't Not see the communities as being very healthy. No, that's why I think that I, I do think that the possibility might come more from instead of it always being direct, small farm, small processor, individual family. 
that the aggregation of product um, what and and like I'm saying from small farms to into something that's maybe cooperatively owned where you aggregate and then you can maybe have that front-facing entrepreneurial non you know for-profit company that then is selling in multiple places all over the area um, then you could potentially have in the small towns still artisanal things happening you could kind of be feeding into that, but also feeding out to where the populations really are. Because in a state like Iowa, where you have 3 million people, how, how exactly are you going to have the dot the landscape with producers everywhere if each individual farm is spending so much time on marketing, website building, distribution? That's where it's not only on the on the farm itself where you uh, have to spend so much time because regenerative agriculture is very time consuming. You have to move the cattle every day, but also in that ways of getting out the food. It, it, it's you can't spend an equal or greater amount of time doing those things and then not have to pay have to charge enormous prices for it. In your book, you talk about this, you know, that at the end of the day, there isn't a lot of energy to service the website and to do marketing. And, and that isn't really even a skill set that you naturally had. So you want to say, I'll do my work. I'll produce the, the vegetables or the beef, and then somebody else should take it from there. But that, that network is not yet in place. And so you wind up having to try to do this. Exactly. And again, I, I think that the really difficult part of this is that there's so many spokes to the wheel, right? You, you're well aware. It's like everything is overlapping. You've got the broadband problems and the housing problems and the um, educational problems. And just it goes on and on and on. And I, I think that it just becomes so overwhelming to think about. I mean, if you if 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 you're in your example of being Berkeley professors and wanting to go start a farm feels daunting, like fixing this entire thing and making rural communities more vibrant is, is really daunting. But, you know, I personally feel like it just, it, it takes us all becoming much more activated in our communities than we've been. You know, you can't just donate money and call it good. It's like, you gotta show up. You're listening to a special one-on-one -on -one conversation between Beth Hoffman and Clay Jenkinson. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We now return to our conversation with Beth Huffman and Clay Jenkinson. That's the question I've been really eager to ask you. There's a, you know, there's pretty strong come up, come up in literature, you know, whether it's Green Acres or Thousand Acres or um, uh, Funny Farm. There's a whole like a popular thing of the the couple that moves out to the land and they're filled with Jeffersonian idealism and yeah. and they hit the wall of rural ignorance, rural attitudes, uh, etc. How many times in the last few years have you thought, man, this was a really big risk or this was a dumb idea? You know, numerous times probably. And it it usually always is when we go into town, (laughs) not just the little tiny town here, but the little bit larger towns surrounding. And every, every time still I have this sort of like, oh, we're going to town kind of thing. Like we can walk around and see some shops and I have this kind of, you know, city mentality about it. And then I go and there's nothing really to look at. And there's, you know, you end up at Walmart and it's, that's when it feels isolating and it's it's actually not like being on the farm alone <laughs> that feels isolating it's the it's the venturing out and and realizing that there's not much going on and that um a lot of it is just a very generic experience you know the restaurants not serving anything that's any different from every other restaurant where it's just kind of they ordered frozen food from Cisco and they throw it in the deep fryer and that's what you get so it's you know that's that's the sort of like ah what am I doing moment of this this but at the same time my rosy glasses think look out and say wow there's so much opportunity but I, I mean, I, and I certainly don't want to sound negative, but it, in North Dakota, for example, I know a number of young people who have started CSA farms, 10 acres, 20 acres. And after seven or eight years, they're just kind of burned out from the sheer hard work and low return that, that yes, they love the lifestyle, but it turns out to look a lot like hard work rather than the agrarian. And so there's a burnout rate and there's very little to regenerate them to keep their spirit high. Yes, and I tried to address that in the book. I mean, there's, again, studies that show that we've sold this very romantic vision and the the Joel Salatin kind of model of like, do everything, you gotta have this big diversity and you're, you're, you would run yourself ragged. And what those studies have found is, is that those farms also typically don't charge enough for their products based on the amount that they're actually laboring. And so there's very, very little return and lots and lots of work and you end up burning out. So they call it self-exploiting yourself, your, your own labor, and um, they burn out and are gone. I think a much more reasonable way of pursuing farming is, is to go in small and slow and add things only when you know that you can actually handle it. Like there's some, and there, there's some great people talking about these things. And I'm not inventing any of this or saying that these are all my ideas, but they, you know, do one thing really well. 
keep your, you got to probably keep your other jobs. You're not going to just move on out with no capital and no, nothing in the bank and make a go of it. I mean, there's very few businesses that do do that. You've got to keep your job, do one thing, figure out how to sell it. Don't just raise things without having a market for it. Uh, that's a big problem as well. Like the, we'll grow it and they'll come. Well, a lot of times they don't come. And so you've got to start small. I think that that's a lot more sane way of doing things than trying to do a thousand vegetables. That's my opinion. And of course, so picking up another one of your threads, it sounds like there's been some, some fairly progressive legislation in Iowa to, um, to enable some of what you're talking about. Several of the things you mentioned really struck me as, as interesting. What, a, how does that happen? And B, what, what would you like to see happen legislatively? Well, it happened, I think, in large part because of the pandemic and the processors getting so over full that everybody knew it was a problem then. Um, when the when Tyson and JBS and everywhere start slowing down the food chain and people you know, it gets backed up to the farms, the ones, the people who are actually taking the risk, um, they felt it. Then they started turning to the local food system and, and filling the processors to the gills with trying to process their own meat and, and sell directly. So that put a lot of pressure on um, legislators. And I think you see that across the country, even where the problems got so extreme that the mainstream groups like the Cattlemen's Association and the Farm Bureau start then advocating for farmers, which I, I would argue doesn't happen all the time. But in these cases with cattle in particular, they start started demanding to know more about how what's going on up the chain and wanting more transparency. Um, so you know, there's those pain points that then push legislation sometimes. What would you like to see happen? What I would like to really see happen is for there to be a real examination of the different programs and the different arms of the USDA and what's going on. So the analogy I use is when you you see someone, particularly elderly people who are prescribed 100 different drugs, right? And you need somebody to actually sit down and look at all the prescriptions and the whole sort of health plan and see what is working at odds with each other. Like, do you have things that are basically canceling each other out? And that's what I see. One of the problems that's going on with the USDA is there's so many different arms and things working that are not working in tandem. They're not working together. They are inhibiting, they're inhibiting actual change. So I'd like to see that, and I'd like to see there be um, a lot more money put in for hiring. Like our USDA office is completely overworked and strapped and not able to handle at all what's going on there. And now that we have even more money from this new bill is going to be pouring into these offices, how expect how do we expect them to actually be out in the field getting people to enroll in programs for the right reasons and giving actual advice so what i would like to see is you know a real examination of what's going on presently and how those programs can work better together and better use of our 
already existing resources in the form of the USDA offices in every single county we have them and the extension offices and the university land grant system they have to realize that you know the future is here this is climate change is now it's happening it's it's impacting us all and we need them to be spending the money and time on research that's going to help us all transition to different things give us more opportunity so i was out in um, the monterey bay area the other last week and i was in carmel and i was in monterey and salinas and uh, castroville and I thought of you and John, because I was reading the book, and I thought, in some sense, who would leave this world? Um, you know, San Francisco, Oakland, the, the shops, the food, the, the vibrant culture, theater, the intellectual dialogue, the, the coffee houses, just the streets, the architecture, um, the newspapers. And I thought, this is a pretty big thing to do this. And so one question I have is, if you could dial the clock back, would you still do it? Oh yeah. I don't. I, you know, I've never lived anywhere. I've never felt like, oh, this is my place. You know, like this is it. I'm staying forever. I'm a very sort of a. I wouldn't say I'm. I'm not fully transient, but I like. I like the idea of spending 10, 15 years in a place and moving on. And I think that. All of that stuff exists. I can get on a plane and go or get in the car and go visit that or go to Chicago. And it's always there. I mean, I, I grew up outside of New York City and that's in my blood. And that's, you know, going to museums and and eating great food and doing all that. That world is always there. It's just, it's a different thing when you're living in it. 24 seven then when you're visiting it you know where you have to battle traffic and you've got to get on the bus and somebody's crazy on the bus and it's a different world it's it's not you know i i think there's pros and cons of everywhere i like the quiet out here i like the um i like the being outside with more of my time yeah i like that flexibility of our days working on something towards something that I see as really a, a higher kind of goals than just me doing my job every day. When you started your life as a writer, I doubt that you thought you'd be writing about rural life. What about your other writing? Do you, are you able to write anything else? Are you, do you have projects that don't involve this experiment? I don't currently. And I've kind of, I'm at a new, like, what do I want to be when I grow up moment of my life again, which I've been here many times. Like I was a, you know, I got out of college and I was waiting tables and ski bumming. And then I went to school and I was a elementary school teacher. And then I was writing and working, doing interviews and learned radio. And then went back to school for more journalism and became a professor. So I've had many different careers. They kind of have veered from one to another, um, all involved teaching really in some fashion, which I'm ready to go back to. Yeah. So I don't know where I am about it right now. I really dislike the world of social media and that feels like a prerequisite for being a writer, which, 
Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. So we went to Castroville, the artichoke capital of the universe. And we looked at these fields and they were magnificent. I mean, they're beautifully manicured fields and these plants and, you know, that great California soil were just thriving. And yet this is a very, very heavy petrochemical operation. There wasn't a weed to be seen. I mean, literally we could not see a single weed. And I, when I looked at that, I thought, Hey, this is an incredible technological achievement because I fight weeds in my garden and they, and if you leave it for a week, they'll, they'll, they'll choke your garden out. Yeah. But B, I thought this can't be, this can't be good. And this can't be sustainable. Do you feel that? Well, you've got to remember why California is the breadbasket. It's not great soil, but it's because it rains at specific times of the year. It used to, right? And so you can control weeds because it's not raining. And that's really an important part of it, this kind of Mediterranean, quote unquote, climate where it rains in the winter, it's supposed to rain in the winter, and then provide and have all this like runoff from the snowpack that's going to feed these crops. Um, and the you can control weeds much easier if it doesn't actually rain. That's not, you know, I, I think that it's, it's an interesting thing. When I first moved to Iowa, when I would come here to visit, I thought I, I was really taken aback, like, wow, there's lots of birds flying around and, and the frogs just have four legs. I thought that they were all like, you know, five-legged, three-legged, you know, poison things. And so I think it's important to remember, it's very refreshing and a very uplifting thing to me to remember how quickly mother nature can bounce back and even though you see those weeds is like ah this is a terrible thing they're taking over it's it's like natural systems are taking over it's they, they've gotten an advantage those weeds and you know what the, what we call a weed and not a weed is questionable sometimes too but the sustainability of it all I mean, I think especially if you're talking about using nitrogen fertilizers and synthetic fertilizers, you know, it's sustainable on a, it's an unbroken system in many ways because it can continue on and you just, it's, it's not the urgency of what's happening is not on a field level necessarily, although the pain point of water is going to push that whole the whole question it's going to push this conversation a lot farther um and that you know but but we all still do want to walk into the grocery store and have almonds and have meat when we want it and so it, it it's a very it's a very hard thing to think about the overall and what what should be done should we just cut off everybody in chemical use i don't know if that's actually best for everyone involved yeah, I love, I, I really admire your will, unwillingness to see this as a set of simple binary choices. Uh, final question for now. Um, what have you learned about yourself in this process? You know, what, when you, this is one phase of your life, maybe it'll be a 20 year phase, maybe it's for the rest of it, but what have you learned that you might not have expected? Well, I think I knew about myself that 
taking time to take care of myself is always important. You know, I think as, as you get older, if you're in your fifties and you haven't figured that out yet, I don't know, then you haven't been paying any attention, but um, so things like, you know, taking time to exercise and feel healthy and meditate. Those are all like really, really important, critically important parts of taking care of yourself. Um, what surprised me, I think, is the uh, is the quiet, which I I have to think that there's millions of people around the earth that don't know that they also kind of need that kind of level of quiet. Uh, that there have to be lots of us out there. I have uh, so much more I'd like to ask for now. We'll let it go, but I, so, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you for all of your time. This was really yeah. interesting to me. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate your, your support and interest. It's really great. Thanks. You've been listening to a special one-on-one -on -one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and his special guest this week, Beth Huffman. Uh, I so enjoyed the conversation. I, I hope we can look forward to more of these, sir. Yes, and the work that I'm doing in listening to America, I'm planning to go to their farm and to look around and maybe pitch in a little bit and see how they're handling all of this. So, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Jane Smiley's novel, A Thousand Acres, where things go wrong on an Iowa farm. But this one, I think, has every chance of success. And it's in a way, David, a, a kind of invitation for the country to think more about sustainable agriculture rather than petrochemical agricultural production. So. I so appreciate Beth Huffman for giving us the time. Her schedule is always exceedingly busy, of course. And with that, we'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826 and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.